You don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your system. So if you don't have a system in place, you're never gonna achieve these goals because these goals are just dreams. And so you always come over to the system and you say, what do you have? Oh, I have a course, I have parent support, I have clubs, I have a coach, I have practice plan. Oh, that's surprising. Really, show me a practice plan. Typically, most of my kids don't have practice plans. This is The Tournament Code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. We know where you're at right now. You have Focus Golf Group in Canada. You're an excellent teacher. But before we get into your teaching, your credentials, all that kind of stuff, let's start at the beginning, which is how did you get into the game of golf? That's a very, uh, first of all, thanks so much, guys, for uh, having me on your podcast. This is pretty cool. I always like helping people out expand their, their, their audience. And so golf came to me very late. I'm a basketball player. I won, started playing basketball when I was 10. Won two essentially state titles, provincial titles in high school. Played for one of the best high school programs in Toronto. Grew up there. Went on to play college. And in my last year in 91, I was co-captain the very first national championship team for college here in my town, which is about a, I would say would be equal about a D2 program. So basketball was my thing. I mean, I only stopped playing about five years ago in a men's league because it was just something that has always been in my life. And you can take the player out of the game, can't take the player out of the game out of the player. But I quickly realized that, like, you know, I was was going out there and I was playing like I was still in college. And it was taking me two, three days to recover. And I was like, man, something's got to give. So so it was interesting. I was actually on a date with my wife in college at a range playing mini putt. And I was with my buddy from the basketball team and another girl. And I said to my buddy, I said, hey, man, you want to hit a bucket of balls? And he goes, sure. So I'd never really hit a bucket of balls before at a range. Grabbed the rental driver, right? Beat up. I'm like, hey, this is pretty cool. Next week, went and rented clubs at the same course, executive length. I was hooked. Three years later, got a job working, coming out of college after winning that national title. Got a, got a job working at a course. This gentleman, uh, Michael Sherman, um, gave me a, a chance to run his back shop with like 1,500 bags. And they had an executive course. And I would spend like all afternoon after my shift down there playing two, three balls. But I played in and got my PGA card the following year. So yeah, I guess you would say in my fourth season, I, I, I got my PGA card and broke par. Uh, I broke 80 in my third year, broke par in my, my fourth year. And it just kind of started me that way. And, you know, it... It was really interesting. I have this very defining moment because in my first year as being an assistant, we got a chance to work on the range. And the director of instruction at that time, this wonderful man, Jim McKittrick, he he pulled me aside one day because I was watching my buddies who were already pros saunter in around 10, got a coffee, most of them smoked, you know, like hacking darts. And they'd be like, you know, working on their game, wouldn't really help the members, right, as they were supposed to, right? Just kind of watch them do their own thing. So I was kind of loafing in and he pulled me aside quickly. Like I think the second time I did it and he pulled me aside and he goes, Hey, don't be like these other knuckleheads. Like show up on time or early and I'll help you out. I'll show you a few things. Cause you're not like these other guys. I said, okay. So I was no dummy. I wanted to learn cause I had just got into this business and I was like, okay, cool. So I showed up, he taught me some things. He helped me, you know, he said, he gave me members to help out. And I really kind of got this teaching bug. And then when I moved to, after my three-year stint there, I went, I went to another course and I was principally the, the lead 
assistant and then the associate for four years. But I did all the junior programs, all that stuff. And I really clicked with all the kids. And I never thought, you know, when I was going through my whole apprenticeship and then as a head professional working for a city here and uh, just outside Toronto, running their courses, I always taught golf and I always had some juniors that I would teach. And, you know, it, I was I was good at it, but I never thought that teaching golf full time was my thing. So then I, it just so happened I got fired uh, in 2010. I took a job as a GM at a, at a, real, at a private club and 49 days in, gave them the strategic plan. Five days later, they took the plan, canned me, put me on the front doorstep with my box. I didn't know what to do, but I could teach. And the local range here in my town, uh, I was like, okay, I went over, talked to them. They said, sure. The really cool part is I worked with a business coach shortly thereafter, and, and he really got me to understand that I should be teaching kids. Because I remember I was at his golf club up north in, the, in cottage country up here in Canada, rarely nice north country. And we were playing his course, and actually we were at the range, and I, I immediately interacted with these juniors, and, and we were driving back to the clubhouse, and he stopped the cart, which looks that's what you need to be. I just had it. I just saw it. I said, you could be the Pied Piper at Junior Golf. I saw how you did it with those kids. I think that's what you got to do. And sure enough, I just, I, I decided, you know what? Okay. So I'm going to dedicate myself to juniors. And it just, from that point, as soon as I took the U.S. Kids certification, met John, uh, John, John Bryan and John Godwin, who played on the PJ Tour. I mean, those two gentlemen uh, really got me thinking differently. And then it just took off. And since I've been doing that, Primarily, I, you know, I don't, I tell people, they say to me, hey, can I get some lessons like adults and stuff? And I said, sorry, you're too old. And they laugh. I said, no, 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 no. I can be a kid. I said, sorry. And I said, I only have about five adults that I teach. And that's because I have relationships. So that's kind of the story. It's, it's, it's kind of gone wild. I, I, I really, you know, now sitting here, you know, 12 years dedicated to junior golf. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. It's an absolute joy feel very fulfilled. And I think because of my faith background and stuff, I think it really does allow me, I always wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't have the marks in teacher's college or university that way. So I was like, okay, what am I doing? Well, I'm teaching a sport and it has so much more than just the sport. So it's kind of cool. Golf's one of the unique sports. I think every sport teaches you something different. I played basketball growing up, played soccer some, I still play basketball to this day, but golf is one of those sports I think that is unique in how it shapes you as a person because you spend a lot of time doing it and it is just you out there to a degree. So you have to, t you learn how to take responsibility. You learn that, you know, what you put in a lot of times is what you're going to get out of it. And a lot of sports you can hide or you can not be exposed as much like basketball. Like, you know, there's different roles to play. And that's a good thing about basketball. Like I like, I like playing a role. It's, it's fine. It's fine by me, but golf, you get put out there, you get put in the spotlight, and you kind of learn what you're made of. And that helps you not just as a junior, but as an adult. I know Cooper and I can both attest that playing golf has helped us throughout throughout our life. So it's cool that that ability and that that is something that resonated with you so much that you're like, you know, I want to help juniors grow up and become adults and golfers. And so when it came to working with juniors, did your basketball background help you at all as far as understanding athleticism, understanding how to work with them and teach people? That's a great question. So I played for probably two of the best basketball coaches in all of Canada. My high school basketball coach, he was a wonderful man. Everybody loved him. 
he bonded with all the kids. We had, it was really funny. We, he passed away this past May and, and at his uh, celebration of life, we were having a good laugh with a bunch of the guys because we were always wondering about how many bus tickets he gave out during the, during the, uh, cause we, our school was right in the, right in the middle of Toronto and, and guys would come from all over. And it was really funny because he would have sheets and sheets of bus tickets for the public transit. And, and it was the only way that everybody got around. Nobody drove. And it's like, literally you'd be all, you'd walk into the athletics office and you'd say, Hey coach, coach, can I have a, you got any tickets? He'd come out with sheets of tickets, right? And I have no idea how much his athletic budget went to that, but man, we were probably thinking like tens of thousands of bus tickets went out in the, in the, in the history of his teaching career. It was hilarious. But, and then in college, I played for probably one of the most amazing men I've ever met in my life. He's still a mentor to mine, my case. He was the most amazing coach because he knew how to motivate. He knew how to give you crap. He knew how to make you feel like you were important. And he also knew how to be chill. And it was like the best of both worlds. And I'll tell you, I've learned so much from both of them, as well as my father being an educator and a principal, um, because the relationships I have with my kids that I coach is probably more important than that whether or not they shoot par. I mean, the stuff that, that I help them get through or speak with or grow with, like I have, I have one girl, she's been with me since she was seven. She's 16 now. And I mean, you know, there's no way she's going to go see anybody else. She is literally like one of my own kids. Like my kids are 25 and 20, but I really, it's this attachment and, and the fact that they know coach Doug will do everything in his power to help them succeed. Right. And invariably, I have had probably in my career, uh, in the 12 years, I've only had four kids leave me to go to another coach, which I think is a testament to, to both my coaching, but also the, the, the fact that it's those relationships that help that. So yeah, it's, it's really kind of neat, you know, the, the, in the, and when you get to the athletic side, having been a basketball player and been very aware of my body and all that stuff, it's, it's super important that I, I, I have a wonderful partner in the performance lab here in Toronto that I send all my kids to for their, their total fitness. Because like, I, I have a general knowledge, but these are the experts and I rather them work with the guys who are the best so that they can be bigger, faster, stronger, and healthy. Very cool. One thing I also was interested in is I, I remember what it was like to be a junior. I'm not that far removed from it. And I think the answer to this may be something close to as an adult, but I remember I had coaches that I liked, coaches I didn't like, and coaches that, you know, where things were good sometimes and things were bad sometimes. One of the things that I think from my perspective, maybe juniors wanted, maybe it was just me, but juniors and maybe people in, in general want to be recognized as being special or having potential. And that's maybe what bonds you to a coach and then a coach helping you achieve that and still recognizing more potential seems like something that's important. It sounds like you see a lot of that in your students. What do you think is, what do you think gives you that bond with your students and helps and makes students not just want to like work with you, but like want to get better with you? That is, you know, that's very interesting. You, you, you were going down one way and I was thinking it was going down this direction. Then you kind of brought it back to this way. Um, you know, Brett McCabe, I listened to Brett McCabe talk one day and, and, you know, he's such an amazing individual and you know like this generation of juniors oh man they are the most demand they want it now they don't you know it's trying to get them to wait is so hard you know if they don't get it from here they're going to go and find it till they hear it from somebody that they want to hear and that has happened 
And I think it's really interesting. I've, I've gotten to the point where it's, it's, it's like, look, I, I know, and I said this, I think I said this to a young, uh, young teaching professional. I was kind of having a good chat with him about it. I said, I said, what you have to realize is this. When you're coaching these kids, if you have done everything in your power and everything in what you've done to help them, whether you consult an expert, whether you consult, uh, you know, in any kind of field to help them succeed, and you know you've turned over every rock and you've done everything that you can help to try to make them the best that they can possibly be, and they still don't feel like they're, they're heading in the right direction, then that's not your fault. And if they leave, it's typically because of the parent not seeing them succeed and the parent wants them to succeed and they drive their bus. Very rarely, uh, so out of the four, one was self-motivated. Three were parents who felt that their kid was not, was falling behind, which was a complete, <laughs> which is completely wrong because the parent always gets in there and we could go down a whole parent track if we want, but I'll digress. Um, but getting back to why the kids want and stay with me, because I treat them as individuals. I have a, I have a catchphrase that I use that my pastor and I came up with about 10 years ago and, and, and it's, you know, character over image, you know, a lot of right now is all about the image. And if you, if you always have good character, you never have to worry about your image. I have a poster in my academy that has those two words and then words over the character and words under the image that, you know, kind of attach those to them. Right. So I kind of just, that's kind of my cornerstone and, and, and I, I act and I conduct and I, I treat these kids with the utmost character. I'm blunt. I'm honest. I don't, you know, I don't patronize them. Oh, you're so good. Oh my goodness. You're amazing. No. Hey, that was a great shot. Right. And, and, you know, I think that way they know, and, and this is going to sound really funny, but my friend brought it up. He goes, in when he nominated me for coach of the year in Ontario, I think I'm the only guy who puts up birthday posts for his athletes on my Instagram. You know, these kids are important and, and to recognize that they have big milestone birthdays, like 16, 18, whatever it is, 12. But, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize that for them uh, because their relationship is important to me. And, and, you know, like I'm not, I don't do that for myself. I do it for them. You know, maybe I do it a little too much sometimes in terms of social media, you know, and, and, and what these kids are always looking for because they tend to thrive in social media. But when they're with me, it's, it's definitely just, it's all about how do we work together to make you the best human being and the best version of yourself every single day. You know, when I was a, when I was a junior golfer, it was really hard for me to kind of, and even into the college and pro, it was really hard for me to kind of detach my self-worth from my results. And, you know, that can go either way. You feel great about yourself if you play great, feel terrible about yourself if you play poorly. And something that came to mind is, you know, you have, since you have this such strong relationships with your juniors and you're so connected to them, is it hard for you to detach yourself from their results? It used to be hard because I used to always think that was a reflection of my coaching if they weren't good. If they didn't play well, if they didn't close out a tournament. But over the years, that's, that's dissipated you know, and is non-existent. I know that 
you know, I'm arming these kids and they're playing in some big events. You know, I have one young boy, one young man who's 15. He's a 2025. 20, he came third in the British Open boys this year. Okay. He's walking down the ferry with a boy from Thailand who won a pro event who's turning 16. Like, you know, he goes out and he plays in Scotland. You know, it's windy. It's hard. He's never played there before. And he shot four under par and played great. And, you know, he started four under, finished four under, like in the three days. You know, I, I, and I look at that and I go, man, you played awesome. You played amazing. Like, it was just so cool to watch. But I know that, you know, he, he's the one that would always like, I remember him messaging me when he was in Tokyo with his team event with Team Canada. And he's literally, I'm getting him text message at 530 in the morning because he's like sending me videos and going, what, what am I doing wrong? Right. And it's like, I, I finally said to him, I said, dude, I sent him a panic button. I like literally a picture of a panic button. And I said, just press this when you need me. Right. Because, and, and we were laughing about it. Right. But it's, it's, it's really hard. That's a very good question because it's really hard to get them to dis, you know, to disassociate the result to their worth. For me, uh, not so much. I'm disappointed for them. I'm always happy for them when they do do well. But I think I think I'm gonna steal a piece, uh, a line from Justin Thomas's dad. He's always proud of Justin, as I'm always proud of all my kids that I coach. I'm just really happy for them when they do well. That is cool when. They finish up a tournament and they come back to, you know, as, as we said, sometimes score dictates self-worth, but when they finish up a tournament, how do you work with them to gauge, you know, first off, whether it's a success or failure besides the score. And then how do you help work with them? Say, all right, here's the game plan. Here's what we need to do or anything on that front. Well, it's really interesting. You know, I'm literally just now starting to pay attention to more of stats with these. And I'm only starting to do that now because, because I think it's going to just help me a little bit more understand what I see and, and, and they understand where they should be focusing their practice. So that's more about why the stats. But invariably, when I talk to them after a tournament, good, bad, or, or otherwise, I mean, I'll give you a quick example. This week, I was talking to my young guy in Texas who went out and shot his personal best in his first round on Saturday and goes out and shoots 11 over that score the next day. And I was trying to get him to understand, like I said, I said, well, how does that change from one day to the next? It's the exact same golf course. What changed in you? You know, I always talk with nutrition, sleep. How did you feel? right? What was the weather, right? What were you, how are you internalizing, you know, like, and, and so through having the conversation with them, I, we figured it out and, and he hit one bad tee shot and he immediately goes in, went into panic mode and, and, and started to try to find a feel. And I know we've all done this, try to find a feel to not do the shot he just hit but he kept doing it instead of, instead of trusting the process and the move that we've, you know, his whole swing, he undid everything that we had worked on by trying something new. And, and so it's often the conversations about not about what you did wrong. It's about trying to play detective and lead them into the self-discovery of, of figuring it out. 
I have a player at the University of Florida right now, and she goes, she played in a tournament and went, this is, this is a scorecard. So she goes, triple, birdie, birdie, triple, par, par. So she's three over. Yeah. And bogey's nine to shoot four over. And then makes four birdies on the back nine. She's even. She makes seven birdies. Like it was, I'm like, and you shot even. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, and then, then she has qualifying and like, like pretty much just like gives up. And I'm like, well, why are you giving up? She goes, because the ball's going both ways. I was like, well, why is the ball going both ways? I said, because when I stand up on a tee, I'm thinking, where's this ball going to go? Well, that's not going to be helpful. How did you feel when you shot, you made seven birdies? Uh, I just stood up and hit it and tried to make birdies and stuff. So why are you not doing that here? Oh, because you want to qualify so badly that you're trying too hard. She's a very interesting young woman because she's got all the talent in the world, but she's never been coached in her high school career. She was taught. She wasn't coached, which is, I think there's a big difference there. So I'm really working with her on breathing. Like I literally had her in one of her qualifying rounds. She had to smile the whole time she was over the ball from start to finish, trying to keep a smile the whole time. And, and when we were on the range working on it, we had on the course videoing with her, she, it was working. And she's like, this is, this is nuts. I said, yeah, you're not thinking about your off swing, are you? So it was kind of 50-50 ball with her out when she went and she shot one over. But, I mean, it was like, you know, it's, it's getting her to commit to that is probably going to be the next little thing that we have to work on her development because her golf swing's fine. What would you say the difference between coaching and teaching is? Well, if you're standing on the driving range, you're not getting off the range and not going out on the course and watching your players play, then you can't call yourself a coach. Plain and simple. You can't coach from a driving range. It's too perfect. I think that's the most simplest, easiest way to put it. Because unless you're out there watching them perform and knowing what they're doing when they're making decisions and you can talk to them and say, you know, like, because it's so hard, right? You're looking at the scorecard as they're playing. You're going, like, like, I'll use an example. My one kid, Eric, the boy who played in the uh, British Junior, he goes out at the Randy Wise AJGA, shoots 29 on the front. 29. 700. I'm like, 59 watch. I'm like, 59 watch, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, this is insane, <laughs> right? And he's 14 at the time right now, playing this major of this AJGA. And then, and then he goes out and, and like makes, you know, I think he made... He finished 64, and, and, he, and he was like, he made one bird, two birdies and, and one bogey. I'm like, but I'm like, I'm asking him after. I said, dude, you're on a heater. Like, what, like, what changed? He goes, I was trying. I was trying to make it just, they just weren't falling and all that stuff. Right? I was like, but I'm thinking, you know, you're on a roll. You, and you get, we've all been on those rolls where you feel super confident. You're making stuff all over the place. I liken that to me being on a, on a basketball court and just, you know, everything's unconscious shooting threes. But, you know, it was really interesting because, like, or you see a kid, you know, somebody, one of my other kids, you know, you're looking at the scorecard and you're going, you're even. Oh, now you're six over. What the, like, what, what happened? Right. But unless you're out there watching them, oh, the, it was straight into the wind. It was a carry over water. They hit it a little chunky. It goes in the, you know, it goes in the water. They make triple, like easy. But like I said, uh, you can't do that standing on the driving range. That's something, uh, that's a trap that Cooper and I both, I think, have fallen in is getting good on the driving range, especially as juniors. It's easy to go out there and get good on the driving range. 
And then, uh, especially, especially with an instructor, I could, I, Cooper and I can both test, at least I can attest. We'd go to our instructor's bay and I'll tell you, there was a time in college where I would hit it 60 yards, right. And 60 yards left with maybe even irons in my hand, uh, when I was coming back from being injured. But if I went into the bay, I could pretty, I could get it. I could get it pretty good. You could, you could look at me and say like, all right, it's not the prettiest, but like that ball's getting out there. But once you got on the course, it was a whole different story. What do you try to do with your students to make sure that they aren't getting perfect on the driving range, that they're getting out there and getting better on the course? So there's a couple things. Like I'll use an example. Right now we are indoors. You know, there's snow on the ground. You know, we are in my indoor academy. You know, I have track band. And, you know, I was having this discussion with my good friend, Chris, and he's a coach out west of here. And and they have an indoor-outdoor. So they have heated bays and they can hit out. He he does this thing called, he works on some constraint learning where it's like he's trying to lead them into how they uh, perform. Indoors, it's a little different, right? But I, I gamification, I, I, I'll say I gamify what they're trying to do in a setting like that. So there's, I, and the other thing is, is when they're practicing, they're only allowed 30 minutes at any one thing. If I, if they're on the range with me at the, at the golf course or something like that, and they stay for longer than 30 set, 30 minutes on the range beside me practicing, I kick them out and send them to something else. Because you, if you start going downhill, like if they, if you're working on something and it starts getting a little negative after like not really great after 30 minutes, you start down that slippery slope, you can't get back up. So you gotta, you gotta change it up. So I give them lots of, lots of tasks to try and make it more game-like. As an example, we have this one right now on, on TrackMan where I'll set the yardage at say 80 yards and I'm gonna go up five yards to up to 130 yards. They have 25 golf balls that they have to hit it within a three-yard buffer, so six yards, plus or minus, right, three. So plus or minus three of that yardage that I keep moving up. And can they do it inside those 25 golf balls? So I add a pressure, I add, you know, I add, you know I'm asking them to, to hit things. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool to watch them do that. I do, my friend Chris came up with this cool 1,000-yard challenge. You have six swings, six swings, and you have to get – that's close to a thousand yards in six swings. You can't take it in five; it has to be six. And the punishment is push-ups plus or minus, however you're over or under. And it gets really fun because, like, one of my girls is so good; she'll leave herself like a yardage, like eighty yards or forty yards, or and she rarely has to do more than one <clears throat> or two. Some of my girls, like, I remember we were outside doing it, and the one girl laid the thought over; she had like forty, had to do forty push-ups, and she was like, "Do I?" I said, "Well, you can try." So anyways, it, it, it's, it's fun. And, and, and so when they get out there, I mean, again, I get out on the course with them um, and different challenges, right? It's like, okay, play from the, play from the forward tees with your irons, right? If you shoot par, move back, right? Like different stuff than your traditional go out and shoot a score. Because dealing with that with a, a young girl in the Bahamas right now who, you know, is like, she's like, I suck. And I'm like going, okay, but. I don't like it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And then she goes, but that's why I'm like, I'd rather not suck more. That's why I quit. I said, well, no, you don't quit. You call me and we work yourself through it. Yeah, that would probably be a good thing. I was like, well, that's why I'm your coach. Right. And it's like, 
she's fairly new into competitive golf. Her brother's big time into it. And, and so, you know, it's like getting her to change her mentality because she's a hockey player. But because of COVID and she's been living in the Dominican, now the Bahamas is turned to golf. And she's a great, great athlete, but, you know, has gone from a team sport to an individual sport. And it's like, nobody's passing me the puck. Right. And it's like, now I have just me and this ball. And sometimes her, you know, her emotions get the best of her. So it's, it's, it's trying to get them to understand that, look, not the end of the world, but how can you work yourself through these things? And, and, you know, you guys mentioned it before in self-resilience, like building resilience in somebody like self-awareness to understand where you are in space it, with golf and, and how much golf does that for you. A lot of times it's like, you know, you have people, parents pulling their kids out of tournaments because they shoot 10 over and the kid wants to quit. What's that teaching them? Nothing. Except that they, they can do it and they don't follow through on anything. So what happens the next time? Right? I don't know. Lots of, lots of little fingers we can go off on here. I was interested when you said, you know, you tell your kids to play from the front tees because that's something I did a couple of years ago when I got out of college. And um, I kind of reevaluated my game because I was just getting ready to turn pro. And I kind of started from scratch again. I went to a new coach. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do to get really good this summer? And I was like, I'm going to play the forward tees until I break 65. And so it was like 5,000 yards. You know, it might take, it took me a while, but I finally, you know, I shot below 65 and then I got, you know, moved the tee back, broke 65, moved the tee back, broke 65. And then like later that summer, I ended up shooting the course record from the, from the back tees. And I don't think that would ever happen if I didn't, you know, just take that step back and say, I'm going to um, start from scratch. And I wish I knew how much that mm-hmm. would help me as a junior golfer. Do you kind of have, is it hard to get your junior golfers to take a step back and like kind of swallow your ego and just, you know, play from the forward tees until you shoot 65 or whatever the number very is? Hard. Very hard. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Uh, that's an amazing story. And it's an interesting point to think that, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, confidence in yourself to say, yeah, no, you know, what? I'm just going to play from here. Uh, my interesting question for you would be, uh, Cooper, is, did you think it was going to be easier than it was breaking 65 from the, the from those front tees? Yeah, I thought it would be yeah. way easier. It took me way longer than I thought it would. That's pretty cool. But then it challenges you, right? You're sitting there going like, okay, this is ridiculous. I should be breaking 65 from these tees. This is stupid, right? And then you're like, well, am I playing smart or am I trying yeah. to beat the golf course, right? It made me think It made me think in ways that I hadn't had to think. There before. you go. That's a great answer because that's why I get them to do something different. Like, because it's, it's like I did this exercise uh, with my kid in Texas. So we played from the front tees and you had to say the intention of your shot when you teed off. So I'm going to hit a low hook with my five iron. I'm going to start it here and it's going to finish there. And it was really cool because when you start giving them the intention and you're saying it out loud, your brain is actually believing it more than just saying it, just saying it in your head. And, and so getting kids to change what they normally do, it's very hard because they think that it's just one way. No, I have to go shoot a score. No, you don't have to go shoot a score. You have to go beat the golf course. And that's something I try to tell the kids all the time. I said, who's your opponent? 
when he goes to go tip it up in a tournament? Uh, the other players, myself, I said, no. Well, somewhat. But I say, really, the only opponent you have is the golf course. Golf course is sitting there saying, hi, here I am. I've got bunkers, trees, bushes, you know, ponds. And my layout is not going to change, but I'm going to have some wind today. And uh, you think you're going to break par? Ha ha. I'm going to beat you. Right. And it's how it's, it's trying to get their brains to think, man, it is literally me against the golf course. So the golf course is sitting there saying to you, come beat me. This is how my hole is. How are you going to beat this hole? Right. And trying to get them to come down and, and narrow it down their thinking is really hard. But it's, it's kind of funny. I stole Payne Stewart's thunder and I, I got my kids thinking at, when they're out there playing. I said, WWDD, what would Doug do? Right. Because he had the bracelet of what would Jesus, what would WWJD. And so, you know, I kind of jokingly said that to them one day. I said, I said to one of my, a couple of my girls and I said, hey, you guys just got to remember WWDD. They're like, what's that? I said, what would Doug do? And no, no word of a lie. Like a couple of terms later, the one girl goes, I kept saying it over in my head. It's like I'm sitting on their shoulder, right? It's like you got a doll on their shoulder speaking in their head. You know, what would Doug do right now, right? What would I be saying to them? And that's kind of how I try to make it. So it, it's, it's not like being stern or like you got to do this, this, this. It's trying to help them figure it out for themselves. That is cool. I know one of the things we touched on there is interesting is that it's hard for junior golfers, especially, you know, scoot up the set of tees. And I think maybe one of the reasons it is part of it is pride, I'm sure. And I remember having mm-hmm. that pride. But also part of it is, especially at that age, it's hard to see stepping stones. You don't really... You haven't seen enough in life and you haven't improved at enough things in life to understand stepping stones. And so what you think you have to do is like, if I want to play on the PGA tour where they're playing at 7,200 yards, I have to go play at 7,200 yards to get better where at, and they don't see like the small incremental steps that would happen along the way. So, and and that's where playing from the front tees comes in. It's like, Oh, Hey, that can, that can get me comfortable being low i can get used to that and then as you scoot back there you go you get you get more used to it it's it's something that's interesting like we had a guy on chip mcdaniel played in the u.s open played some on corn ferry and the pga tour now he's assistant coach at eku and i can remember this growing up as a kid i didn't talk about it with him on the podcast but i can remember growing up as a kid you know a lot of people come from all different parts of kentucky he came from manchester kentucky a smaller area he grew up on a nine-hole golf course and the kid was a world beater, kind of like to a degree. Like he won three straight Kentucky U.S. Juniors. He won the 2013 U.S. Junior PGA. He won the 2013 Kentucky Am. Growing up on a nine-hole golf course, and you know, there's questions every now and then. Someone say like, "How's this kid so good?" And I think there's a lot of reasons to it. There's work, but one of it is he grew up on a course where like you got used to shooting 65. You got used to shooting low. Like it's it is that simple to a degree, and that. There are stepping stones to it. And most most kids want to do is repeat. It goes the same thing with working out. Like if you want to swing faster, like the stack system, like we've used that. We've talked with Sasha. That episode will drop mm-hmm. sometime around when this one drops. And I'm a big fan of it. But we talked like why does – He's Canadian. Of course you're a fan of it. <laughs> exactly. And we talked to them like why does it not look like a golf club? Like why does it not – why are these things different about it than a golf club? Would it be – better if it were a golf club we were questioning but more just like why why would it be this way and essentially what he helped explain to us is like because it's different is what makes it better it helps train you get used to something different that overspeed training concept comes in it's the same thing with golf and kids 
kids and even adults to a degree, if they were trying to make themselves swing faster, what's the first thing you would do? Maybe grab like heavier clubs and like swing the heavier clubs as fast as you can. Cause Hey, if I can swing it fast, heavy, I can swing it fast, light. And that's those, I know I've gone on a real long tangent here, but those stepping stones are integral and kids and kids miss those to a degree. So when it comes to well, me, trying me, to make me, sure, let just, yeah, let me, let me kind of pick on that. So absolutely. It's an interesting point because you, you guys mentioned something earlier in the podcast, you know, these kids stay on the driving range. Well, okay. Nine hole course. Did he even have a driving range at the nine hole golf course? Right. I don't think so. so. Why? So all he had to do is play. So, you know, the, you know, the, you know the difference between a, a, a wild tiger and a, and, a, and a zoo tiger? No. Okay. So, zoo tiger knows he gets fed at this time, this time, this time. Right? Wild tiger has no idea when he's going to eat. He has to hunt and track down his food to survive, to live. He has to work really hard to survive. Take the wild tiger, put him in the zoo. It's the spa. He can survive in captivity because he now doesn't have to work so hard. He's going to get fat. Take the cage tiger, take the zoo tiger, put him in the wild. He's going to die because he doesn't know how to survive. He doesn't know how to work for what he wants. It gets served to him. So now apply that to a driving range and a, and a country club where everything is laid out for you and it's, you don't have to work that hard for it because it's perfect. Now take it to the nine hole course where, man, I got to go play every day. I'm going to play, I'm going to play 54 holes and I'm going to just, I'm going to play from this tee. I'm going to play this tee. I'm going to hit it over in this fairway. I'm going to, whatever. That's why that guy's so successful because he game, he was challenged wild tiger. He was, he had to go grind it out and that's why it make him a champion. So if you want, if, if you want to go be a champion, right? Stop standing on the driving range, go play a whole bunch. Right, it's kind of the whole thing about block practice and randomized practice. Because if you start blocking random at the same time, the block people are going to exponentially get quick, better, faster. But the 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 randomized guy is going to go like this. So he's going to go up, and he's going to surpass the block guy because the block guy is going to plateau because they just sit here and beat balls. But the randomized guy who you're giving him a golf club and saying, "Yeah, go figure it out," will eventually figure it out and be able to hit shots. And that's your boy who has the nine hole golf course. That's dead on. And we've seen, we've seen other corollaries like that. Another guest of ours, Will Holcomb, played down at Sam Houston State. And one of the impressive things, same thing, grew up on a nine-hole golf course for a lot of, lot of his life. And one, again, like I'm not saying nine-hole golf courses make the, make the golfer or anything like that. But I think one of the things that helps contribute to being comfortable at low age, because Cooper and I, at least I, we both grew up, I got into the game later, but we both grew up on longer championship golf courses at I mean, that that golf course I was talking about earlier, you know, it's a 7,200-yard golf course, trees all down the side of the fairway. And I didn't break 70 in a tournament until I was in the senior year of high school. There you go. And that's because I was beating mm-hmm. myself up every day on that course. Now, that's not bad, no. you know. it was There were certain good things that happened because I played that tough course, but that's just the fact right. of the matter. Absolutely. Right. And, w- and one of the things I think – that's helpful, at least from again. I didn't play. I didn't play college basketball. I played high high school, and I still play a lot now. And I'm mediocre, is how I describe my describe myself. Reasonably athletic, with not enough skill to go around. But one of the things I always remind myself from 
basketball is, is there's there's two real big differences or two things that I've learned from basketball that helped me in golf. And one, one in basketball, like if you put in more effort, a lot of times you're going to, you're going to get out more. If you try harder, you'll, you'll get more. A lot of times it's not necessarily the same thing in golf, but, and so that's something I've learned like, Hey, like when it comes to actually trying golf, like, yeah, practicing more is good. Like practicing smarter is good, but like wanting it more, like trying to like run faster. It doesn't, it doesn't exactly translate at least from what I've seen. And the same thing, something that's similar is like in basketball, like we've all played against those guys that have the most broke shot in the world. It was a, it was a shot that was invented one way or another, maybe because they were playing at a park and the park was rougher. So you had to shoot it back up here or something like that. But the shot goes in. And when you get out there on the, on the basketball court and you're shooting and something feels off and you feel like your shots broke, you can't be sitting there analyzing, Oh, I got to get my elbow in more. You just got to shoot the ball. Like it's the game you got to shoot and you can figure out the problems later. And it makes me think of your student who was playing over in Tokyo who was saying, Hey, I got these problems. Like, can you help them help me with them? And sometimes you just got to go shoot when you're at the tournament. That's the time to just go shoot. So for students, like, do you have any rules about like swing videos about technique work when it comes up to tournaments? What's your rules? How do you handle that? It's maintenance. It's giving them uh, keys. It's, it's getting them ready and prepped, uh, not introducing anything new and just managing, managing them. You know, it's, it's really not, you know, trying to add anything when they're going into any majors or big events. And that's why, that's why having the schedule. So, I mean, I, I sit down with any one of my kids and, and, you know, like, what's your tournament schedule and, and how do we, how do we get ourselves set for that? So, I mean, I've, I caddied at the South Beach, uh, South Beach Am this past Christmas and, you know, I was caddying for Eric he played in it and we played with a guy from France who's on their national squad. He's 19. He came 15th in the Paris Open on the DP Tour. He won a French pro event prior to coming, you know, five, nine, 150 pounds, maybe, talking what, but, you know, flies at 295. It's a great, a really nice young man. And, and, but like, he's just going to DP Tour. But, you know, I look at this and I go, he didn't have, his coach was there, but he wasn't adding anything to him. He was just maintaining and what he was doing. Same thing with me with Eric. It's maintaining it. It's, you know, like it's not adding it and not knowing and knowing when not to add something is super important. If they're having a real bad go, like I've had, I had one of my girls literally send me a video from the range before she went out. And I was like, okay, well, you're just not, you know, you're not hinging the golf club. That's literally all I said. Right. And sure enough, it worked. But it, it's, I, I typically don't want, unless they're, unless they're struggling after the round of the tournament and they need just an eye to see and we'll do a little FaceTime check-in. That's about it. But I, if it's off the rails, it's like, okay, why is it off the rails? And then that gets back to what we talked about earlier about going through and debriefing with them. And that's why I try to keep in contact with my kids before, after, before during, and after their tournaments. I say, do you guys need help? Do you, need, do you want to talk it over? You want to FaceTime? You want to talk about your round? Some say no. Some say yes. Some, some you know, want to say after. So it's it's just it, it's the art of coaching and balancing with these kids and knowing that they're all deep, they're all different individuals and some need it differently than others and some you don't need to talk to at all. So it's it's really the art of balance. So as far as that debriefing goes, I know you mentioned you know you've kind of gotten into stats lately. What does that 
reflection process look like when you talk to your kids after their rounds and you know what kind of stats are you talking about and what kind of stuff are you talking about that's not directly tied to the stats i'm just asking them a how they felt like you know, did they feel nervous did they feel calm did they feel anxious comfort did you feel com- comfortable out there and when i say that it's like they didn't feel anxious or rushed or cold or wet like junior boys last year up up north the clouds opened up and two of my boys shot over 80 that had no business shooting over 80 because they didn't prepare and they were soaking wet for the first nine holes right now one turned it around and shot even par the next day and made the cut and the other one or no shot even under par and and made the cut the other one just missed making the cut but they shouldn't have put themselves in that situation but they didn't they weren't ready no umbrella to start with no towels right and so it's it's a lot of you know just going through checklists and saying you know what was it not really talking about staff so much unless it's like well, I had 37 putts. Well, why? Right? Well, my speed was off. Okay, so did you do any speed drills afterwards? No. Well, I mean, why not? Right? It's 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 not it's not trying to say to them and, and you know, trying to like I'm trying to lead them to the answer. I'm not trying to give them all the answers, right? Because again, like it's not like we're doing this for the first time. It's it's trying to, to decipher why did you play not your best? Or what you know, if you played your best, and that's the other thing to the other side of the coin, when they've played their best. I get them write down what they ate, how they felt. Like I remember the very first tournament, Eric broke par and like won by like 15. He was six under, and the nearest guy was like, you know, was not even close. And and I said to him, "What'd you eat that week? You know, how'd you feel when you were playing? Um, what'd you eat on the course? What was your what was your thought process? What were you thinking when you got on over every shot? And and to this day, his, his best rounds show up when he's just chill. Like you can't even see him. Like you can't even tell like he's happy or sad or whatever like that. You know, he'll he'll smile a bit more when he's when he's playing well, but he's very tempered. And uh, that's his I think that's his secret weapon, because I have another boy who's I mean, him and my other kid, Luke, were the only two named to the AJJ's all star squad uh, out of 10 guys out of all of the AJGA. So it was really kind of cool. Only two Canadians. And Luke Smith won the Stacey Lewis this year on the blessings. And that golf course is like insane. Right. Like so. He's extremely external and debriefs with him are more like, you know, him realizing that he, you know, was overthinking or overheating or not, you know, not taking his time and, and his, his pace was wrong. Eric's more like, yeah, I just didn't feel like it today. So that's how it works. That's how it works that way. We've talked a lot about students who are working with you currently, et cetera. And we know that you won the 2000, 22 coach of the year in Canada. And that's, that's obviously a compliment to you from your peers, among other things. And we've talked a lot about what coaching a student looks like as far as like handling things on the golf course, tournament stuff, et cetera. And I don't want to break away from that too much, but obviously to A, have the students you have, B, get an award like that. And just in general, the resume that you have you have also the technical chops to be able to teach students. It's not just it's not just oh, I'm working with them and showing the, and just watching mm-hmm. them hit golf balls, et cetera. There's a lot. There's a lot more that goes into it. So, a little bit from a technical perspective, I'm a new student. I come to you. 
what sort of coaching are we looking at and what sort of teaching are we looking at to try to maybe help me get my potential? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's all set up by the very first meeting. I always say, if I'm onboarding anybody new, it's let's get together. Let's have a session. Let's see if there's a rapport. First and foremost, right? It's, it's, I want to see what makes this student click. All the while I'm having conversations with them when they're hitting different shots and, get, and, 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 and hitting different balls, like, you know, different clubs. I'm asking them questions like, why do you like golf so much? I said, well, what's the best part of your game when you're playing well? What's the worst part of your game when you, that frustrates you? What's your lowest score you've ever shot in a tournament? Why do you want to be coached? What do you want to do with golf? And all the while I'm doing this, I'm actually videotaping their swing. I'm looking at TrackMan. I'm, I'm blueprinting them because I created, a, I created a blueprinting system that kicks out kind of the starting point to wherever they, they want to go. It's kind of like I, I, I often use this story. I said, all right, Coop, you and I are going to go uh, climb Mount Everest. So let's, let's, you hop on a plane in Kentucky. I'll hop on a plane in Toronto. I'll meet you in Nepal. And we'll just go climb Mount Everest, right? There's only one problem. You and I are going to die if we go do that. We don't have a plan. And we've never done this before. So we got to think about what does that look like? What's the journey? How do you do, how do you climatize? How do you buy the supplies? How do you create the right environment? How do you fly there, go to base camp, figure out the route you're going to take, go to camp one. Oh, it's a snowstorm. I got to go back to base camp. It, there's not a direct line to the summit. And I'll talk about that with the kids because invariably everybody thinks it's a quick highway to, you know, somebody looks at Eric and I've gotten, I get phone calls every week about coaching kids and stuff like that. And it's like people look at him because essentially he started with me when he was 11. He's now just turned 15 in a very short period of time. He has climbed the ladder. So he's one of the best juniors in North America and he's five, five, not huge. He's a pretty strong kid, but he's just good. And I had him tested by my performance lab guys, and, and he kind of let me in on his little secret. His parasympathetic nervous system works in perfect order. So he can, he's the most mobile, stable, strong, and capable athlete I have based on all the, all the tests that they did on him. So he can learn the fastest. He can gain the fastest. He can, he can adapt the fastest out of anybody in my academy. And it's kind of like his secret weapon. He goes, he's a complete outlier. This is why he's where he is. And if you were to test, say, a Michael Phelps, geez, a Steph Curry, a LeBron, like these guys, as they were going through their youth, right, these, the, the, this parasympathetic nervous system allows them to adapt and change and be, be better, faster, quicker. So it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because like as I'm going through this evaluation with the kids, you know, I'm, I'm making them laugh or I'm asking them more things. I said, I said one of the other questions, I'm like, what do you like to do when you're not playing golf? Because it's not always golf, right? Do you like to play video games? Do you like to read? Do you like to go to movies, hang out with your friends, like shop, right? And, and I think by doing this, I'm not just talking about golf, right? I'm watching and observing. And I'm like, well, here's what I found. Here's what I found. You know, if you're, you just told me that your worst part is you hate it when you snap hook it. Well, you snap hook it with your driver, but your, your eight iron, you make the same move. It's just a different club. And here's why. And I kind of map it out. And then, you know, I say, so maybe give them a little something to work on in that hour. And then I send them away. And I say to them, you guys go talk with your parents. I said, and let me know if you guys want to come back. 
and then we'll figure out what it looks like. And I think I've had two say no. So it's, you know, Very yeah, cool. I, I, and I think that's super important. I mean, there's so many different things and reasons why, right? But again, I'll go back to the fact that I don't, I don't, I don't come across egotistical. I don't come across knowledge, like I know everything. I may be a little bit quirky and a little funny, a little goofy, but I'm definitely coming across to make it warm and enticing because kids need to feel that they're safe, right? They need to be in a, in a, in a safe environment and feel like they can be themselves. Invariably, I always ask them, are you nervous? They're like, a little. I'm like, well, that's okay. You're allowed to be. I said, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's trying to make them be the most comfortable that they want to be. So they want to come back. Very cool. I was going to ask, so about that blueprint, does that kind of include, you know, practice plans, um, what tournaments they should be playing in, um, or what, what more kind of along those lines does that, does that. So what I have is I have this in the blueprinting system I have when they come back and stuff, we sit down and we do a window pane. So I have given you a little bit of the, the inside workings of me. I have this, uh, box drawn on a whiteboard in my academy and it goes gems, opportunities, goals, and system. So I can send it to you guys so you can see it, but you start with gems and you're saying, okay, so what are the things you're doing really well and you want to continue doing? And you list them. Okay. So where are the opportunities for you to get better? Personally, what do you think? And then if I've been coaching them, because I do this with all my athletes every year, I say, well, here are your opportunities that I see. Now, where are the opportunities that you see of you getting better? And it could be reducing my putts per round. It could be fitness. It could be nutrition. It could be mental state, right? It could be a bunch of different things. Goals. Oh, these are the terms I want to play in. This is where I want to finish, right? And then I always go over to the system last because James Clear in Atomic Habits said this, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your system. So if you don't have a system in place, you're never going to achieve these goals because these goals are just dreams. And so you always come over to the system and you say, what do you have? Oh, I have a course. I have parent support. I have clubs. I have a coach. I have practice plans. Oh, that's surprising. Really? Show me a practice plan. Typically, most of my kids don't have practice plans because I say to them, hey, what'd you guys write on the way up to the car ride? Oh, no, I was on my phone. I said, why don't you write your practice plan out? You better write something out right now before you, because I'm not going to let you go practice before you write it out. Right? So invariably, I come over and say, what do you need? Okay, you need a tournament schedule. You need a fitness schedule. You need a, you need a practice plan. You need golf balls, right? Or you need equipment. And, and invariably, what you're doing is you're kind of showing them the window into their golf and where, how they can look at it and what they want to achieve. From there, we do tournament scheduling. And typically, they'll say to me, you know, what do you think I should be playing? And I say, I use this ladder of tournaments. So you got the different rungs are different levels, right? The very top would be like a pro event. And then you come work down and you go like, you know, Canadian AM, USAM, you know, Canadian junior, you know, US junior. You won't go one down. You saw AJGAs and like, you know, like provincial tournaments and stuff. And then you come down and you're like, oh, these are like the local tours. And then farther down, you go inner clubs and maybe like your club tournaments. And then, you know, just... It depends on the level they want to go into. And if parents really are stuck, I send them to a, a website called the juniorgolfpathway.ca. 
I was part of a task force from across the province. We sat down and we, we basically created a, a, a website for parents to go on and, and help them find their way through junior golf. This is all along the same lines of our, our Golf Canada long-term player development plan about kids and tournaments and stuff like that. Because, like, you know, kids are playing earlier and earlier. I've been to the U.S. Kid World eight times. And, I mean, it's just an awesome place to be and it's a lot of fun. You know, one of my kids, she won at 10 and 11, and it was like I was watching a tour player and she was 75 pounds, you know, move it out there. It's, you know, trying to help them get to these goals and, and, and plan it properly. So you, it's, it's all encompassing, right? You, you really try to get them to have a good plan. A lot of them do it with their parents and then share it with me. I don't sit there and work over everything with them, but I, I'll advise it. I'll advise on it because a lot of them are really good at it now. I know as a junior golfer, that it was tough. My family wasn't a golfing family. I kind of just picked it up and figured it out. And it sounds like that resource is something really useful. And as far as the practice plan, same similar thing happened to me. I took lessons for a while and I really didn't get that much better until I worked with a coach who made me implement a practice plan. And then I figured out and learned how to practice. So those are great tools for juniors to use. And it's really cool that you're helping provide those. I think that really puts a nice button in it as far as, you know, how you started, what you're doing now, and everything that comes with coaching juniors. And you're a perfect guest for this because our last question of every podcast is if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer, what will you tell yourself? So in your case, since you didn't really play golf as a junior, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? Patience. Honestly and truly say, be patient. If you, if you have patience, you will, you will achieve what you want. Because it's, I mean, this game will chew you up. And I don't want you to be the best 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old. I want you to be the best when you're 17, 18-year-old and still loving this game. So stay patient. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Beautiful. Well, if people are interested in reaching out to you, learning more about you, uh, having you coach them, or at least anything on that front, find you on social media, where can they find you at? On Instagram, you can find me, and Twitter, you can find me at Focus Golf Group. On Facebook, it's Doug Laurie Golf. And then if you would like to email me, it's Doug at FocusGolfGroup.com. And I'm a resource. If you have any questions, direct message me, send me an email. If I can help you, I will. And I can't thank you enough for allowing me to spend this a little bit more than an hour with you boys and uh, having a great chat. Well, perfect. Be sure to give Doug a follow. And then if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Tournament Code and on Instagram at The Tournament Code. We appreciate you listening to us and look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 